Good morning, Calvary Chapel of the Sierra uh, Church of North Fork, displaced, evacuated, and spread throughout the world. Uh, listen to this verse from Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah 43 begins in verse 1, says, But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Now we're going to be in John, which is the series we've been going through, but we're going to spend a good amount of time in Second Kings today as well uh, with another story that, that just fits with um, both the passage and the times we're living in. Uh, but these verses from Isaiah are um, just such a, a comfort, and I wanted to share them with you. And I, I also wanted to encourage you that as the Lord brings these kinds of comforting verses to your mind, uh, or any kind of verse to your mind when you're, you're meditating on the Word, on, on seeking the Lord, and He brings that verse to you, I would recommend that you go and read that verse in your Bible, even if you have it memorized. I know memorization is so important, and the reason why a verse comes to mind like that is because you put it there uh, with the help of the Holy Spirit. But going to the scripture and opening it and, and then reading in the context can be so rewarding. Uh, when I sat down this week to piece together uh, this sermon, I wasn't sure whether I was going to go with the passage in John chapter 9, uh, um, which I had already prepared for, or the special circumstances called maybe for something special. But, but this verse came to mind and I went and I read it in the chapter and read the whole chapter. And obviously the fire theme is something that becomes very real to uh, many in our church family right now. But as I continued on into chapter um, 43 of Isaiah, I got to verse nine and it says, bring out the blind people who have eyes. And, and you read and keep reading and you see that this, the, the kind of deliverance and protection that the chapter begins with, it, it swells into this promise for deliverance and for healing uh, for all nations, which is marked with a call to the blind and the deaf, and then ends with the promise of the forgiveness of sins. Isaiah 43 verse 1 won't be our text this morning, but I, I want it to be in your heart as we go to John chapter 9 and some other passages to see what we can see. Um, seeing and blindness. These are the themes of John chapter 9. So let's go ahead and read it. Um, we made it 25 verses in last week. We're going to start at verse 26 and then read through to the end of the chapter. It says, Then they said to him again, this is Pharisees speaking to a man who was born blind but then was healed. Then they said to him again, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Why this is a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he is from, yet he opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God he does his, and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins. Are you teaching us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, do you believe in the son of God? 
He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see, and therefore your sin remains. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, um, God, I, I pray that, uh, that by the time this sermon is posted online on Sunday morning, that the prayers that I'm praying now on uh, Thursday afternoon would already be answered. Because um, I'm praying for a, a, a quick response to uh, the wildfire that's going on. Um, I pray that, that the people in our church would be able to return home soon. I pray for protection for the firefighters and for families that have, have stayed to defend their properties. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would bless your church now as it is scattered. Um, I pray that, that the word that your word that is spoken today, uh, would be mighty, would be powerful. Um, that the sermon that's preached now, uh, here by myself into a camera and then onto the internet uh, for anyone to see that this would um, touch your body in such a way that your church would be edified and made beautiful in your sight. Uh, we pray for eyes to see. We pray open the eyes of our hearts, Lord, and we praise you that we were once blind, but now we see. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, so uh, like I said before, we're going to spend some time in Second Kings. Um, and it's kind of a back and forth sermon today. It's not really structured verse by verse by verse. We are going to see this chapter for what it is. And, um, but, it, you know, we're just in a different time. Obviously, you can see that the setting for me is a little bit different. You know, uh, we, we left our, our house. We're right on the line of the evacuation notice um, or evacuation order right now. Um, I can stand at the, the checkpoint and look up at my house and say, I can't go there, but I can stand right here. Um, so we're, we're with Bethany's family um, now and waiting it out. Um, and so it's, it's a little strange. And now last Sunday, uh, a few of the brave among you showed up for service. And it was such a strange setting. You know, even if you didn't come, you know, because you have windows and you looked out and saw brown and orange and smoke and darkness, unlike anything I've been in. It was just so heavy, so weird. And um, as with many other events, from the last few months. It's been easy to make light references to the apocalypse, right? The sun darkened and the moon turned to blood. And, and last Sunday, um, now you didn't get this if you were watching from home, but if you showed up for the live version, then, then you saw, you, you noticed, I talked about the actual meaning of the word apocalypse. Um, the word means revelation. If you have a Latin Bible, the last book of your Bible is, is apocalypse, not revelation. It's strange because when we think uh, of um, revelation or apocalypse, we think of dark and creepy and mysterious and weird. Um, and when we think book of revelation, you know, we think confusing. Uh, but the point of revelation, as you should infer from the title, is that Christ is revealed. He is shown to be who he is. Uh, the point of apocalypse is to see what was previously hidden uh, and it's interesting, the word epiphany and the word apocalypse are very, very similar in, in meaning. You could really use the word apocalypse in almost the same way. You use the word epiphany. Both are these eye-opening experiences, the light bulb moment. Both are revelations. 
And in John chapter 9, we saw a blind man receive his sight, but we also saw that he wasn't the only blind person in the story. There are layers to the, this, these kinds of blindness. Uh, in a way, the disciples were blind um, more than the blind man was. They were blind to the way the world works. Remember, they saw this man who was suffering, and they were unable to separate, separate in their minds, pain from punishment. Uh, they would agree with the friends of Job that if something uncomfortable is happening, it must be because you made a big mistake. Now, they're blind, and Jesus opens their eyes, and then Jesus opens the blind man's eyes, and the blind man encounters some Pharisees next, and, and they're blind in their own way. They're spiritually blind, but their egos see very, very well and keep them in sin, and Jesus kind of references that to, at the end of the chapter. They see in a certain way that prevents understanding. So there, there's these layers and levels of blindness and seeing. Now, so our, our perceived understanding of, of this word apocalypse is something chaotic and destructive and confusing and mysterious, uh, world-ending. And the literal definition of the word is an uncovering, an unveiling, a revelation. These are very different things, um, but they're not opposites either. They're very different, but they're not opposites. This isn't even an instance of, of true or false, it's more of a lesson about how these things go together. We, we have this understanding that an apocalypse or the revelation is dark and confusing and chaotic, but then we, we know that the definition is a revelation, is an appearance, is an unveiling. So how do these two ideas fit together? Well, I think we see an example of this in John chapter 9. There was a man born blind. Every day he was in darkness. Every day he would sit and beg for his food. His life is not comfortable. It is not well-ordered. He is an outsider. And when people see him, they think judgment. Like how most people read the book of Revelation, spending most of the time looking at all the bad things that are coming, right? The disciples saw this blind man and they thought God got mad at something. But what really happened? The, the point was God showing mercy on someone, that's what happened. Jesus says, this didn't happen because of their sins. This happened so that you could see me work. And the, the man's eyes were opened. His physical eyes were opened. He had a revelation. There was an unveiling. It was his own personal apocalypse. But then things are, are still pretty chaotic for this guy, right? He's interrogated by the religious leaders. He's sort of given the cold shoulder from his family. And eventually he is excommunicated. He is cast out from among his people. This was a horrible thing to have happen to you. His life still resembles a judgment-centered, fire and brimstone kind of thing that we, we think of when we hear the word apocalypse. But what happens next? He sees Jesus. He is given vision. His eyes were opened so that he could see. He has an epiphany. And I, I hope you can see the connection here. When we sing in, in the hymn, It Is Well, we sing the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. We're talking about a sky that is filled with clouds, perhaps clouds of smoke. The rolling back of the clouds is the apocalypse. I want to share another story with you about eyes being opened. And interestingly enough, it's got some pretty wild fire in it as well. So it's 2 Kings chapter 6. And, and here's the setting. Um, the nation of Syria is at war with Israel. So at this time, Israel doesn't really have good leaders. Uh, this is long after David and Solomon, after the split between the northern tribes of Israel and, and Judah in the south. Uh, Judah, if you count up all the kings of Judah, it, it's like half and half. You know, there's 
There's a chunk of good kings now and then, and then bad kings, about 50-50. The northern tribes were pretty much all bad, all the way, with very few exceptions. And that's where Elisha is serving as prophet. So Elijah was first, and then his uh, apprentice prophet was Elisha. Elisha is serving in the northern tribes of Israel. And so Syria, which is evil, is at war with Israel, which is pretty evil too in its own right. But it, a man of God lives there, and God has mercy on Israel. So Elisha warns the king of Israel twice where the Syrians are planning their attacks. Uh, it must be nice to have a prophet on your side. Uh, the Syrians figure this out. They realize there's something special going on because uh, it's like there's a spy right, right there in their midst. And, and someone tells the king of Syria, yeah, there's a prophet there. And he tells the king the things that you're saying in your sleep. Um, he can. He knows everything that's going on in your mind. So the Syrians change course. And instead of going after the king and his armies, they go after the man of God. Now, already in this story, there's a strategy of the Lord and there's a strategy of the enemy that you as the people of God should be aware of. The tactic of the Lord is simply this. The people of God are meant to be an asset to their community and their country. Israel had problems. It was not a, a good place, uh, but it's where Elisha lived. And Elisha was there to bless his hometown. He was there to bless his home country. And, and if, if the chosen, um, you know, if, if someone might say, well, this was Israel, it's God's chosen people, chosen nation, so of course Elisha has to pick sides with them, then you may have a point, but the clearest application, I think, of this principle that we find elsewhere in scripture, it's not in relation to Israel, it's in relation to Babylon, uh, the most wicked city that we can imagine, really the, the archetype of evil cities. In Jeremiah 29, verse seven, it says, um, seek the peace of the city where, where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace, you will have peace. This is what God's people do. They bless the place that they're in. Now, what this means, of course, is that we as God's people have our work cut out for us. The world that we live in, that we have been caused to dwell in, needs blessing. Our town is going to need some serious blessing. And, and I think we do start with the people in our families and in, in our church. We've got people in our church who have lost homes and we, we absolutely need to take care of them, but don't stop there. Bless North Fork. Find out how you can give. There's going to be work. And it usually it's usually once hearts stop racing and the smoke clears, quite literally, that people calm down and then usually decide not to help because they feel a lot better about the situation. Adrenaline seems to, uh, you know, kick the servant's heart into gear. And, and I'm asking that we as a church not have our, our, our helpfulness or our servanthood only be powered by adrenaline. Uh, we, we don't want to go back home and, and then relax. And we have to remember that people, there's some people that won't be able to go back home. And we have to figure out as a church where, how we can help and what we can do. So God's strategy always is for people to bless their community, bless where they have been caused uh, to stay. And this, this may be an encouragement for um, many of you if you're still not staying at your house. Uh, if you left because you were evacuating, you're staying somewhere else. Well, the place where you are staying, whether that's with family or, or a complete stranger or living out of your car, uh, you got to find out how to bless the area that you have been placed in. 
Um, this is God's strategy. It's for his people to bless their community. And that's what Elisha does. But the enemy has a strategy as well, and it's this, attack the people of God. Elisha isn't really Syria's target. He's not a military power uh, in the strictest of senses. They, they just have to get him out of the way so that they can attack Israel. You, as a believer, cannot be defeated by your enemy in the ultimate sense. God says, you know, why would you, Jesus says, why would you uh, fear the person that can only destroy your body? They can't win. You know, you, you already won as a believer. You're more than conquerors. Whoever has been given to, the, to Christ by the Father cannot be plucked out of his hand. So really the ultimate battle, it isn't about you. You've already won, but that doesn't make you any less of a target. The enemy attacks the people of God to make them ineffective so that he can destroy those who will be destroyed. The battle is for the world, and you, as the light of the world, imitating Jesus, as the salt of the earth, will be targeted by those powers of darkness that prefer darkness. So we have a strategy of the Lord and strategy of the enemy. Um, and we see echoes of this really in John 9, 2, as, as the man who is healed is, is attacked, even though their real fight is with God, but they, they go after the man of God in, in that story as well. But on with the, uh, the story in 2 Kings. Uh, the Syrians target the man of God. 2 Kings uh, 6, verse 14 says, Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city, the city that um, Elisha lives in. So they're surrounded. They find where Elisha lives. They go to his town. They surround the place. Now Elisha has a servant, verse 15, and when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots, and his servant said to him, alas, my master, what shall we do? And this servant is all of us. Uh, this is the person that we can relate to. He sees his town surrounded, threatened. He can see with his eyes, his physical eyes, an enemy. He can count on his fingers and see that he is outnumbered. And that's really his problem because he thinks that everything worth knowing is known through the senses. And he is left in despair because he judges the situation by what he sees. He judges it to be hopeless. Two chapters ago in John chapter 7, Jesus said, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Isaiah prophesies about Jesus in Isaiah 11, verse 13, saying, And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. And it goes on to say, But with righteousness he will judge. Now there's a danger in judging only by what you see in front of you. It's not a hopeful place to be. So the servant says, What can we do? And what he really is saying is what... Um, he, when he says, what do we do? What he's really saying is, what can we do? The situation is obviously hopeless. I don't see that we can't, can do anything. And in 2 Kings 6, verse 16, it says, So he answered, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. See, that's what I'm talking about. The servant was granted the ability to see what he couldn't see. And the Lord prayed that his eyes, uh, sorry, that Elisha prayed that his eyes would be opened and the man had uh, an apocalypse. <laughs> he had an awakening. He had an epiphany. Now listen to Elisha's words here. 
Do not fear. We read that in Isaiah as well. Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now the visible count, with physical eyes, if you're just counting, it's two against everybody. But the actual count is God versus the Syrians. God plus nothing is already a majority. He wins. But the one who only judges things based on what they can see by appearances, judging by appearances, will miss out on this revelation. And Elisha knows because he can see with spiritual eyes. He knows that there's more with them than there are against them because he knows that God is with them. And don't we believe the same thing? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's scripture. And there's another story of a hopeless situation where the Assyrians, different than the Syrians, this is the Assyrians, but still bad guys, they're attacking Judah, the southern kingdom, and they have Jerusalem surrounded, and the king Hezekiah, he says to his men, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid nor dismayed before the king of Assyria, nor before all the multitude that is with him, for there are more with us than with him. And then he, he gets his paper out, I imagine, and he, he tallies up, you know, who's with him and who's with them, just to show his men who's uh, who has more? He says, there's more with us than there are with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. Hezekiah there in Isaiah, he explains what Elisha was saying. There are, there are more with us than with them. Not Isaiah, I don't know why I said that. It's in the Chronicles. Um, he says, uh, maybe it is Isaiah. I don't know. I guess I didn't write it down. Might be both. Uh, Elisha says, you know, there's more with us than there are with them. How? Because they only have flesh. We have God and that's how we fight. You're looking at a physical battle and our entire strength is spiritual based, spirit based. When Elisha's servant's eyes are open and he sees that the mountains are fully full of horses and chariots of fire surrounding Elisha, these angelic chariots of fire, are only seen a few times in scripture. Once when Elisha's predecessor, Elijah, was taken up into heaven. Um, and then here with the whole army. Now these are God's armies. And the servant was able to see them. His eyes were open to see spiritual forces at work. Then the story continues, and it's actually pretty funny. Uh, because what happens is Elisha asks God to make the Syrian armies all blind. Remember Jesus said he came for judgment to make those who can't see, see. And to make those who can see not see. So the one who couldn't see, which is the servant in Elisha's situation, uh, had his eyes open to see. And then all the Syrians who are marching in, who have physical eyes to see, they, they're struck blind. Um, and while they're figuring out what it feels like to be blind, Elisha kindly goes up to them and says, oh guys, I think you're lost. Uh, you have the wrong city, but that's okay. Follow me. And then he takes them, uh, all these blind people, they follow him and they takes them to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel says, well, should I kill them or, or what? These are my enemies. And Elisha says, no, no, I think you should feed them lunch. Uh, so he prays and they receive their sight. Um, they get their own eye-opening experience and they have a feast and then they're sent on their way. It's a great story. It's kind of weird, but it's a great story. And in this story, we see the layers, the different kinds of blindness. And we see the opening, the revelation, the apocalypse occurs uh, each time in a setting of chaos and mystery. This is how this, these ideas of apocalypse get joined together. The servant is panicking. He's terrified. He sees judgment coming. He can't believe that anything good can happen out of his situation. And then what happens? He receives heavenly vision. The clouds were rolled back as a scroll. 
The Syrians, the enemies of God, they're blinded even in their attack. Think of Saul on the road to Damascus, ready to attack the good guys, and he's blinded. But then they have their eyes opened, and what do they get? They get a buffet. The, the words of David become true for these enemies of God. You prepare a table for me in the presence of mine enemies. That happens for the Syrians. Now, remember what God's strategy was and is? It's to bless. Bless where you are. Bless the people you are with. And as Jesus says, bless your enemies. Do good to those who spitefully use you. Now, once again, in the coming days and weeks, you are going to have an opportunity to bless your community. I have no doubt of that. And in the past week, you've had opportunity to do the same. And just as I said in the church email that I hope you received, I'm so encouraged um, by the help and the care that you have shown each other. Once again, you have shown yourself to be the church and it's, it's a beautiful thing. But let's remember this, that, that the help that is needed, fire or no fire, that the help that's going to be needed after you go back home and then long into the future, always until Christ returns, the true help that is needed is spiritual eyes being opened. It's spiritual enlightenment. It's spiritual illumination spiritual awakening. And as a reminder of last week's message, if you are healed, then you're sent. If you can sing, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see, then you have a job to do. You are sent primarily to open the eyes of the blind. You are sent to people who need Jesus, just as the blind man found himself after his healing, being in a conversation with the Pharisees about Jesus. Now, earlier in the chapter, he said that Jesus is a prophet. He confessed that when the Pharisees asked him, what do you think about this man that healed you? And he says he's a prophet, which means he's sent from God and has authority to speak on God's behalf. And the man's not wrong. Jesus does have that authority. The Pharisees then, they, they want the man to admit that Jesus is a sinner. And the man says, I can't say that. I don't know if he's a sinner or not. I, I don't have that authority. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But what I know is this, that I was blind and now I see. And now the Pharisees had already said earlier in the chapter, how could a sinner do these things? Some of the Pharisees. So you can see what he's implying. The, the, the man who is healed is implying that if he healed me, he can't be a sinner. <laughs> and then we ended last week with his testimony and ours. I once was blind, but now I see. And then in verse 26, they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to be his disciples? And I, I like this because this, this brand new uh, mint condition evangelist, he was healed so he could be sent, is already seeing things clearly. He recognizes that the questions being asked him aren't honest questions. He says, I told you already, we've talked about this. And then he says, do you also want to become his disciples? Now, I, I think the man knew that they definitely did not want to become Jesus's disciples, but he's steering the conversation in that direction anyway, because he's saying we can't go around in circles and talk about the details. This is a matter of the heart and we have to get to the point. He's saying, I only want to talk about all of this with you if you're interested. I only want to talk about what happened to me in terms of getting you to see the one who has healed me. And the Pharisees take offense, of course. They revile him. They say, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we don't know where he is from. A lot of prejudice there again. The man answered and said to him, why, this is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from. Yet he has opened my eyes. 
And then this guy is going to preach a sermon. He says, now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. This is a great sermon from a person who has just been healed minutes ago. And then you can see that the contempt from the Pharisees is just palpable. It's thick. Their blindness is evident. The man says, this is a marvelous thing in verse 30. And he's not talking about the healing. He's saying, it is marvelous to see how little you guys can see. He says, it's marvelous that the Pharisees that are supposed to be so wise can't give him an answer about this marvelous man named Jesus. He says, it's marvelous that you have been shown so much evidence and you're still clamping your eyes shut, unable to see what's right in front of you. Then the man states clearly, if this man, Jesus, were not from God, he could do nothing. And then the Pharisees, for this statement specifically, excommunicate the healed man. And in casting him out, they push him right into the arms of Jesus. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, do you believe in the son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. This is fantastic. You see, Jesus sought him out. Jesus is seeking this man still. Now, excommunication would be the end of this man's world. Even as the restoration of sight had just begun his new life, excommunication was the worst of judgments. He was not an Israelite any longer. He couldn't go to synagogue. He would be shunned by society. He's a Gentile for all, um, you know, intents and purposes. I think that's the right way to say that. It's, but in, in all of the connotations, you know, of the word, this is his apocalypse. He has been judged. It's chaos and destruction. And this dark setting of persecution provides the setting for the awakening that comes next. When Jesus hears that this man has reached another level of darkness, he, the light of the world, seeks him out, gives him a revelation of himself, and leads him into true worship. The chaos of excommunication makes way for the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, do we or do we not live in chaotic times? Do we or do we not see confusion and destruction and craziness? Haven't we been making apocalypse jokes all year? Well, what are we supposed to make of it? Now, in terms of eschatology, that's end times things. Yes, we believe that all these things are leading up to the return of Christ. Jesus is coming soon. But practically, we believe that every apocalyptic scenario is an opportunity for Jesus to reveal himself to people. Just as Jesus saw this man at the beginning of the chapter and said, the reason for this is so that I can work and you can see me do it. And at the end of the chapter, he takes another hard situation as his cue to show up and work. And we don't like the hard places. And we don't like uncertainty. We certainly don't like anything that can make us uncomfortable. But the fact is, it is in these types of scenarios when we feel vulnerable and uprooted, that Christ seeks us out and says, uh, and says, I, do, do you want to worship me? Because now's the time. Do you want to believe? He says, do you believe in the Son of God? Christ seeks these times to ask questions and guide us. And the question he asks this man is, do you believe in the Son of God? Now, this is a question for you, and it's a question for the world. It has to be asked when we are least comfortable, because it has to be asked at our lowest of lows. The question is not asked in a worship service when the creed is recited, when hymns are sung, 
And it's easy to say, yes, I believe, just like all these other people, and we're gonna say that we believe. Uh, it's asked after everything has been taken away, when you've been stripped raw, and then Jesus says, do you believe now? Do you believe in the Son of God? And when given the opportunity to believe after Jesus grants him another epiphany, another apocalypse, the man says in verse 38, Lord, I believe. And then he worships Jesus. This is how we fight our battles. This is what we are asked in the time of uncertainty. Do you believe? And we must say yes. And this confession that we believe in Jesus, the Son of God, will lead us into worship. And now is the time to worship. Look at how this man's awareness of Christ has increased through this horrible situation with the Pharisees and his family leaving him in excommunication. And it all leads up to this worship service. And in verse 17 of chapter 9, he confessed that Jesus is a prophet. And he's right. Verse 27, he acknowledges that he is a disciple, which means that Jesus is his master. In verse 33, he confesses that Jesus is from God. And in 35 through 38, he's, he learns that Jesus is the Son of God. And when he says, I believe, he is saying he be that Jesus is the one who he trusts with his life. And finally, at the end of verse 38, he sees Jesus as the one who his soul must worship. God says, worship me alone, which means this man believes Jesus to be God now, there's, there's some parting words from Jesus that close up this chapter, and we'll look at those just real quick in closing. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin, but now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. Now, there's a passage that we continually return to in our study in John. It just keeps coming up. Uh, it's from John's other book, Revelation, the Apocalypse. Um, when Jesus sends a message to the Laodicean church, his words to the Laodicean church really are the best explanation of what Jesus means um, when he says to the Pharisees that their sin remains because they say they see. By, by saying that they see, they're saying that they're healthy. They're saying that we have no need of a physician and Jesus has said, I came for the sick. You know, that the prerequisite for coming to Christ is brokenness. It's, it's sickness. It's sin. It's death. If you've got those things, you're a good applicant for Christ's mercy and grace. But in his letter to the church, um, in, in Christ's message to the church of Laodicea, uh, he says some things that by now, if you've been following in our study in John, you'll be familiar with, I'm sure. But he says, because you say I am rich, I have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that you, the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. When the Pharisees say, we see, what they're saying is, I am rich, I have become wealthy, I have need of nothing, and they don't know that they're blind. This is the type of person Jesus will spit out of his mouth. That's what it talks about in Revelation 3. Now, I want you to thank the Lord for making you aware of your needs um, so that he can also open your eyes to his provision because that's how apocalypse works. 
He gives these promises, you know, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And so we cling to these promises, but we cling harder because we are aware of the fire and the water. We look to Jesus with more focus and more longing because of the chaos and the confusion we find ourselves in. Guys, I'm, I'm praying for you, uh, my church, and I'm praying for you because of the crazy place that we're in as a church, you know, as many of you not at home, and those who are breathing pretty bad smoke, you know, and, and there's evacuations and the, the uncertainty of it all, so I'm praying for you, but I'm praying especially that your apocalypse will be the real kind, that the setting of uncertainty would give way to a revelation of Jesus Christ. The clouds would be rolled back like a scroll and you would see the Lord high and lifted up, that you would hear his voice in ways that you can't unless you first become aware of your need and your vulnerability. And since that's where it seems where we are as a congregation, I can pray these things confidently knowing that the Lord is close to such people, that the Lord desires to reveal himself in seasons such as these. So let's pray. Lord God, I pray for my church. I pray for the people in my church. I pray that you would uphold them with your righteous right hand, that you would protect each one. And most of all, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to them in a way where they can see how awesome and great and beautiful you are, to where they can say confidently, with faith that's a gift, I believe in the Son of God, and that that would lead them to worship. We worship you now, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Savior. Amen.